We Christians like to believe it as it is written that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We have also noted that people have trouble with that and there's a lot of controversy surrounding origins and that there are alternate theories as to how we got here and how this planet that we are traveling on came into being. We also respect the right of those people to believe however they wish. It is a free country. It is a free world. You can think anything you'd like. As to why people think that way and how it came about is told to us by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans that says that from the beginning of creation his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that men are without excuse but although they knew God they did not glorify him as God neither were they thankful but they became futile or empty-minded in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now I think that's an accurate description of a person who views life apart from God. Years ago, let's go way back to the time of the medieval period of history, if you asked a person how we came about, they would go, what are you so dense? Don't you know God created the heavens and the earth? That's easy. The farther that man has progressed or digressed from the original creation, he's become more and more futile in his thinking and his foolish hearts, their foolish hearts have become darkened professing themselves to be wise, they show that they are fools. And the farther man gets from creation, that's his lot. The psalmist declared, it's the fool that is said in his heart, there is no God. So we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, Paul goes on to say, they did not wish to retain God in their thinking. And so God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are against nature. Well, tonight, we begin in Genesis chapter 2, which is a recapitulation of God's creation. We've already seen in chapter 1 the creation of the biosphere, which is the atmosphere and the surface waters of the earth. We've talked about how they've come into being, and we've watched the progression, and the stages of the biosphere. We've seen outer space as God flung his universe into existence, it's good for us to occasionally step back and just check it out. When you walk into a gallery, uh, an artist that portrays his paintings, you don't do that artist or yourself a service by quickly browsing through the museum. The best thing to do is to gaze upon a work of art. Step back. Check it out. Soak it in. Drink it in. Get all that you can. Stop sometimes when you see these beautiful sunsets out here in New Mexico. They're unparalleled. They're one of the most beautiful places in the world for a sunset. And when you see it one, pull over on the side of the road and just check it out. Look at the colors God used to paint those skies. And just go, God, you're too much. 
or especially this summer, go up to the woods, go up to the mountains and check out the stars. Maybe invest in a telescope. Look what God has made. David in Psalm 8 said, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have created, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would consider him, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. And then I love Psalm 19. I'm getting carried away, but I'm in awe of God's grandeur. I'll just read it to you. Listen up. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone throughout all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. Go this summer and camp and consider as you look up that you're looking at a small segment of the Milky Way galaxy that contains a hundred billion stars. And that you're in one corner of God's created universe, there are a hundred billion other galaxies. And in the midst of that one hundred billion other galaxies, you're tucked away in the corner of it, the Milky Way galaxy, you exist in an area that's roughly 10,000 light years by 100,000 light years long. And imagine sometime what it would be like to get from one end of it to the other. Imagine if you could get on a beam of light that travels at 186,000 miles per second. By some fluke of science, we were able to strap you onto a light beam, and you were able to go that fast. And so, zoom, off you go. In one second, you could circle the earth seven and a half times. In one second, in about a second and a half, you go past the moon. In about seven and a half minutes, you get past the sun. That's quick. If you travel on that ray of light for two and a half years, you get to the nearest neighbor star, Alpha Centauri, going 186,000 miles per second. I mean, just a model, if you were to create a model of this immediate universe by using spheres. Let's say you get a baseball and a basketball. The basketball represents the sun. The baseball represents the earth. And for every inch on your model, it will represent a million miles. And so you place the sun, the basketball, 9.3 inches away no, let's say 93, so 10 million miles. It could be because the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. So you put it 9.3 inches away, these spheres. If you wanted to get another sphere that represents the nearest neighbor star to the earth next to the sun, which is Alpha Centauri, you have to place that sphere 40 miles away. Now you're traveling on a beam of light going 186,000 miles per second. Two and a half years, whoom, you go past Alpha Centauri. It'll take you 10,000 years to go from one width of it to the other, one side to the other side, and 100,000 years to get from one end to the other end. And there's 100 billion other galaxies out there unexplored besides your own, which is only 100,000 light years long. There are more galaxies 
in existence than people who've ever lived on planet Earth. In other words, you could name a galaxy after every human being ever alive on planet Earth. Think how big it is, and then think that in the corner of that is the Milky Way, and one speck of dust, only 8,000 miles in diameter, is the Earth that you're on. And you can understand, David said, when I consider the heavens the work of your... What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visited him? And when you think of the vastness of God's creation, you marvel at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he would give his only begotten Son to pay the price for the penalty of their sin. That's love. Especially to have his Son condescend to become like one of us. Their voices not heard, where their voice is not heard, their line has gone out to all of the earth and their, wor uh, their words to the end of the world. So everything God made, he said it was good. Uh, chapter 2 would seem like a second account of the book of Genesis in creation. In fact, there is the theory that it is a contradictory account and that there were two authors. One penned the first account in chapter 1. The second penned the second account in chapter 2. And obviously the second author didn't know the first author and so he went to write and contradicted the first one. That's baloney. It's simply what we call the law of recapitulation or reiteration. Going from general to specific. Chapter 1 is the general overview of the days of creation. Chapter 2 is more specific, dealing with man and woman, God's crown prize of creation. And so thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Verse 1. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work which God has created and made. I was asked last time we met about the days of creation, so I, I thought I should just touch on it. Were the days of creation literal 24-hour period days, or were they long sections, perhaps hundreds, thousands of years. And people say, well, the Bible says one day is as a thousand, year, uh, a thousand years and a thousand years as a day to the Lord. Therefore, it must be, you know, at least a thousand years long. Not necessarily. The idea espoused is what some believe when they call it theistic evolution, that God used evolutionary processes to bring about his creation. In other words, he created in that embryonic state and let the thing develop and evolve and he's allowing the forces of evolution uh, as we hear taught in school today and uh, thus it's kind of the marrying of the biblical account with the humanistic account. Two thousand times in the Old Testament the word yom in Hebrew day is used and invariably it is used for a 24-hour period. I personally believe it was 24 hours. Now, I had a man who was an evolutionist who was my roommate at one time. He used to be an evolutionist. And we were discussing this over dinner one time. He says, I think it was thousands of years. And I said, then why is it in Genesis 1 verse 5 that 
evening and morning were the first day. Evening and morning were the first day. He said, I never saw that before. And as he researched it out in the Hebrew, he was convinced that it was a 24-hour day. Also, the idea of the Sabbath, the seventh day, and the model of the Sabbath that is still used in Judaism today, six days, the seventh day is a rest, was not a long thousand-year rest. It was a day's rest, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. The exception to that in the Bible is the day of the Lord. The coming of the day of the Lord, which is more than a day. It is a time period which will last at least seven years. And depending on how you view it, you can include not only the rapture, the tribulation, the judgment, but the millennial kingdom all gathered together into the day of the Lord. But that's something for a further study. But I can whet your appetite as we get into the word tonight. Now chapter 2, as we said, is a recapitulation focusing on the creation of man, God's crown of creation. The human body is an absolute marvel. I had the opportunity when I was going through college to study the human body, and as it was taken apart, and I looked at it, you know, through um, our science books and through uh, the cadavers that we would examine and stuff, you just go, wow. Certainly God's crown of creation. Your body has 30 trillion cells. You began as one. You started life as a zygote. That's what you were. So the sperm and the egg met. There was a fertilization that took place. A single cell, then a division and multiplication. And you became a little baby and you were born and you grew. You've got 30 trillion cells now walking around. Within each cell is a nucleus. And one biologist described a nucleus like a miniature Tokyo. You've got millions of components in them, producing things, using things, messages going back and forth, electronic mess electrical messages and impulses and chemical impulses, and this rapid exchange millions of times per second. Not only that, but you've got coded, computerized information in each nucleus of each cell. You've got genetic material, the DNA, 23 pairs of chromosomes, one set of 23 from mom and one set from dad. They tell each cell in your body how to act from birth to death, how you look, how your nose will be shaped, your lips, your hair, how tall you'll be, how short you'll be the disposition to gather fat and to expel it. It's all in the genetic code. The genetic code, the, the, this material, is like a tape inside the nucleus that's circled up and scrunched together. It's densely coded information. Now, if you were to take, if you could, and unravel that genetic material, it would be like a ribbon that stretches about seven feet long. But if you were to do that and take that scrunched up spring-like stuff and stretch it seven feet long, you wouldn't even be able to see that fine hair even with an electron microscope. That's how thin it is. Even the, It's densely uh, compacted, coated information. It would stretch seven feet long. If you took all 30 trillion cells in your body, 
and pulled out that material, connected it end to end, you could go from Earth to the moon a hundred thousand times. It would stretch. Yet, the genetic material, if you were able to scoop it up, you could only barely get two teaspoonfuls. Remember, it's very, very thin, densely coated information. Okay. If you were to take one cell of your body and transpose it from the way it is written in the nucleus of each cell and convert it to written information, each cell would be able to produce 4,000 volumes of information. You say, man, that's one cell. What would it take to take all 30 trillion cells? Well, Ever been to the Grand Canyon? You could fill the Grand Canyon to overflowing 40 times. Taking all of the cells of your body, taking the genetic information, transferring it into written information. Now the Grand Canyon is between 3 and 20 miles wide. It's a mile deep and it's about 200 miles long. The psalmist said we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Why is it then that people say, it's just by chance, random chance over 4.5 to 10 billion years that we came into existence? Just by a fluke, life spontaneously generated. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. So you walked out to the West Mesa, you were digging around, you and your kids, and you found a little arrowhead. And somebody said, how did this arrowhead come into being? What would you say? He'd say, well, somebody made it. I mean, it's got symmetry, it's got design. In respect to two planes, it's the same. It's shaped, obviously used by ancient peoples for hunting, because we can find other ones that have the same kind of design. The ironic thing is that our schools will teach that we, in this complex, as complex as we are, spontaneously generated by chance, but that arrowhead was designed. God's crown of creation, just by chance. Well, I, I, I other things to say, but you know, I, it's, we just got to get into it. Okay, the heavens and the earth. And all the host of them were finished. God finished it. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, notice, from all of his work which he had done. Now, God did not rest because he was tired after putting in 40-hour work week, needed a break. He rested from his work just because he was finished with it. He had no more to do. His creation was completed. Things were producing after their kind. After he was done, it was done. So he rested. It was over. He could look back at his work and say, it's good, and I'm done. It's not like, i got to take a nap. He wasn't tired. He was just finished with it. Now, I've never been able to say that. Every day and every Friday, I walk away from my desk here at the church, and I've never once been able to say, I can rest from all of my work. It's all done. Because I still have a stack of letters 
stacks of stuff people give me to read. Books, videotapes, cassette tapes, phone messages. And I've never been able to get through them all. And sometimes it piles up and people say, Hey, when you get to it, could you read this? I always say, Yes, when I get to it. Oftentimes I don't. Because the thing just you know, keeps piling up. And I've never been able to say, It is good. It is finished. I'm done. But God was able to rest. He completed His creation. The work was over for a while. We're going to see in the next chapter His work begins, the work of redemption because of the sin of man. And the usurper comes into the garden to destroy God's creation. And God blessed, verse 3, the seventh day and sanctified it because in it He rested from all of His work which God had created and made. It's the first time the word sanctified is used in the Bible. And it means to be set apart, consecrated, or holy. God took and said, this day is different from all the other days. And because of the creation, the Jewish people have always rested on Saturday. From Friday evening to Saturday evening, they rest. Sabbath. They worship the Lord. The pattern that God established was six and one. Work six days, rest one. Now in America we do things differently. We say work five days and rest two. But I don't see people really resting two. I see them planning more activity. And often they're more tired from their weekends than they are from their work week. I like the pattern six and one. When I lived in Israel, I was into it. You work hard for six days, but the seventh day you crash. And you probably would live longer and healthier if you took one whole day and did nothing. Just laid in bed. Just hung out. And just relaxed. And that was the pattern that the Jews have followed for years. This is the history, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. By the way, there is a spiritual application to the Sabbath day for Christians. Not a literal one. We don't have to keep Saturday. I know some Christians teach, if you're really a Christian, you have to go to church only on Saturday. To go to church on Sunday is taking the mark of the beast. And, uh, and so we worship Saturday. God forbid that you worship Sunday. Well, Paul the Apostle said, One man esteems one day of the week over all the others. Another man esteems all of the days alike. Let each person be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, it's not a big deal. If you're hung up on Sunday, go for it. If you're hung up on Saturday, go for it. If you're not hung up at all and you want to worship God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, go for it. Be persuaded in your own mind. It's not a big deal. Well, why do Christians worship Sunday? Easy. Jesus rose from the dead. And there's a newness of life, and that's taught in the New Testament. But there's a spiritual application. It's taught it to us in the book of Hebrews. It says, since there is a promise that is given to enter into a Sabbath rest, let us strive to enter into that rest. For he who, cease, he who enters into the rest must cease from his own works, just like God did from his. So just as God rested after the work was finished, as Christians we look back to the cross where the work of salvation is done, period. You can't add to it. You can't earn your way. You can't add one thing to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. He paid your debt. So you can rest in the finished work of salvation accomplished for you 2,000 years ago. You by faith 
place your life in Christ, he will impute to you righteousness. So we read about in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a rest, man. That's a rest. I can go to bed easy tonight, knowing that I'm secure because of what Christ has done. So he sanctified it, blessed it. History of the heavens and the earth, I just read that. But what I didn't tell you in verse 4, it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now there's a different word for God here. Chapter 1, it was the word in Hebrew, Elohim. We described last week what that means. Now we have the word Jehovah Elohim, Lord God. We say Jehovah in English. It was probably pronounced Yahweh by the Hebrews. The tetragrammaton, or the four-lettered word, is all that we have remaining. Y-H-V-H. Yahweh, or Jehovah, is a more personal name, or it's the covenant name for man dealing with God. The name Elohim is used when God deals with non-believers or creation. But when it comes to His covenant people, it's the term Yahweh, or Jehovah. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. It seems, according to many creation scientists, and would be sustained by the teaching of the scriptures as we saw last week, that there was a canopy, a water canopy, that surrounded the earth. In fact, there was a firmament in the creation that God established, an expanse between the waters above the earth and the waters on the earth. The water canopy would produce sort of a greenhouse effect where you'd have lush vegetation, a constant temperature around the earth. It would knock out certain ultraviolet radiation that could cause cell mutation and uh, the aging process. And man, at that point, with that shroud around the earth, was able to live for hundreds of years, being fresh out of the creation. They didn't have the disease and the problems that we have due to diet and so forth, degeneration and intermarriage that have come throughout the years as the strain of humanity has been broken down. Just fresh, pure creation. And man was able to live a long time. Now we're going to get to the flood after a few chapters where it rains for 40 days and 40 nights upon the earth. It would seem that during the flood God drew the water from this canopy and, if you will, drained it because it's not in effect after the flood. And the age of man begins to deteriorate. He's unprotected now from that radiation. In fact, we all know what it's like to be unprotected, especially in this state. We have to use number 20 or number 18 or number 6 screen on our bodies when we go out in the sun, because the sun can eat you up. You have to protect your eyes with sunglasses to cut out the UV, because you can get cataracts, and the sun can produce all sorts of uh, ailments. Look at a person who goes out in the sun a lot. Look at the wrinkles that are produced. The aging process is accelerated because of the amount of radiation that the skin is taking in. But, verse 7, this is your roots, man. The Lord God formed man of the dust 
of the ground. Now the scripture says God knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. I like that scripture actually. It's one of my favorites. Every time I fail, every time I fail to meet a standard of the Lord and I come to him in repentance, I often begin by saying, Lord, the scripture says you know my frame that I am but dust. I'm not perfect. I am created but I am but dust. Fellowship has been broken. I want that fellowship restored. I confess my sin before you. You're dust. It would be good for you to remember your humble beginnings. That you are but dust. The 15 to 16 major chemical com or components that are in your body is the same that is in the dust of the earth. It's been said, when I was a kid, I remember my teacher used to always say that if you were to take the chemicals and components of our bodies and break them down, we would be worth $2.98. Of course, inflation, you're probably worth, you know, 6 or $7 by now. But God created you out of the dust of the ground, and Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes that the dust or the body will return to the earth, but the spirit will return to the Lord who made it. So man is physical. He's been given a body. But he's also spiritual. He has the capacity to communicate with his creator unlike any other creation that God made. And man, as we've discovered last time, is a tripartite being, body, soul, and spirit. When Adam was made, he was made body, soul, and spirit. The spirit was meant to be on top, communicating with the creator. The soul or the mind was to be governed by the spirit. The flesh was to be governed by the spirit. He used to have the mind of the spirit, not the mind of the flesh. Chapter 3, the fall occurs, and man does a flip. And his body becomes uppermost. He knows that he's naked. He tries to hide himself. He's conscious and aware of his own body and his own needs physically. And he takes on himself what Paul says is the mind of the flesh, not the mind of the spirit. So he's flipped over. The spirit is dormant on the bottom, dead. There's no spiritual life within him. You are born separated from God. That is why you must be born again, or spiritually born from above. And when you ask Jesus into your heart, you flip back and you're not upside down anymore. You're right side up. Your spirit is uppermost. God gives you a new nature, able to communicate freely with your Creator. Up to that point, listen, you can pray all you want to. And God doesn't communicate with you if you're a non-believer. The Bible says God's hand isn't short that He cannot save. His ear is not heavy that He cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and your God. God has no communication or fellowship with you. And I hear many unbelievers say, Well, I pray every day. Well, you know what? You're wasting your breath. Until you make the first prayer, Jesus, I am a sinner. I repent. Come into my heart and forgive me. Make me your child. Then you've got a relationship established. Then the gap of sin has been taken away. And you can have fellowship with your Creator. In fact, He's more than your Creator. He'll be your Father. And you'll be His child. And you'll enter into a whole new relationship. And so the Lord breathed the breath of life and man became a living being, literally soul, nefesh. The Lord God planted a garden. I like that. He was a gardener from the beginning. Remember Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. 
Here the Lord God plants a garden eastward in Eden, which is a term that means delight, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Man was placed in a perfect environment. It was ideal. I've often tried to think what it would be like to be Adam. First of all, what a great job. Adam, here's your job. You get up in the morning whenever you feel like it. Go out there and I'll bring animals to you all day long who will be at peace with you. They will not be hostile. They won't attack. There was a kinship between the animal kingdom and man. And you look at them and you think of names for them. That's your job. I just want you to name them and fellowship with me. Oh, great, Lord. That is a great job. It was a pleasurable thing. Now, we don't know where Eden is except by the description of the rivers given here. We suppose that it was over in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, present-day Iraq, the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent. Now, it's already a fertile place. That area is lush. It's beautiful. However, at one time before the fall, it was even more so. Gorgeous. We don't know exactly where it is, but that could be it. But God made Eden, placed man in it. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I am anxious to get to heaven. I've lived on this earth almost 37 years, which is a short period of time, I know, but already I'm homesick. As I read about the Garden of Eden, that God... In six days, created things that light be, light was. Expanse be and expanse was. Fling the stars into existence, make trees, make animals. God saw that it was good. Six days. Even though we live in a fallen world, as you look outside when you go on vacation, it's beautiful. There's still a remaining beauty. There's the evidence of the Creator's touch. And I love to go like to Yosemite National Park up in central California. I used to love to go camping there and see Half Dome, Bridal Veil Falls. Woo, check that out. God spoke that into existence. And then I ponder the promise of Jesus Christ where he said, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return and gather you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, if in six days God can make this kind of a setup, imagine what heaven must look like. He's been preparing it for you for over 2,000 years. I go to prepare a place for you. It must be out of sight. And so when a believer dies, I just think, lucky stiff. <laughs> Do I mourn their loss? Yes. But I mourn their loss selfishly for myself. I'll miss that person. I will cry. I will weep. Especially if that person is close to me and my relative, I will mourn, and you should mourn. But if that person's a believer, do I mourn for them? No. Isn't our goal to be with Jesus forever? Oh, the guy beat me there. <laughs> now when I get there, he'll know the place. He'll be able to show me around. 
He goes to prepare a place for you. Think of the original creation and then think that for 2,000 years Jesus has been preparing a place for you. Man, it's going to be out of sight. I think your first word when you wake up in heaven, when you take your last breath on earth will be, whoa! <laughs> It'll be awesome. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, and is the one which encompasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which encompasses the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidikel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Or literally, in Hebrew, to enslave it. Here's your land. Enslave it. Capture it. Discover the secrets of creation. Research it. Look at the leaves. Look at the seeds. Look at the animals. Do your scientific research and marvel at my creation. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper that is comparable to him. Now God placed these trees in the garden. And he says, Hey, go for it. Have fun. Cap capture it. Enslave it. There's one tree, hands off. Don't get near it. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we might ask, why God would he, why would God put a monkey wrench in the whole system? Just by allowing this tree to be there. Actually, that's not my question. My question is, why didn't Adam and Eve go for the tree of life? Instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the answer, of course, is the enemy, Satan, tempted them. He was more crafty or subtle than any of the other creatures in the garden. But also, we have been given a capacity to freely choose. We have volition. God has never forced any of you to love Him. God never forces you to lift up your hands. Only a robber will do that with a gun in your back when he wants your goods. God would never stick a gun in your back. He would say, if you freely love me, then worship me. But you don't have to do it. Free will, by its nature, must be given a test. To whom much is given, much is required. God did not make you a robot, an automaton, where you'd wake up every morning and go, Praise the Lord, I love you, Lord. God wouldn't get off on that. It's just a program. You've got free will. And so God gave man a test in the beginning to see which he would choose, to love him or not, to follow his way or to go his own way. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Or literally, dying, you shall die. And of course that happened. The day Adam and Eve believed the devil and took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a twofold death. Spiritually, man was separated from God, passed on that sin from generation to generation. And secondly, man began the decaying process. He began to die physically. Though Adam was able to biologically continue for 900 some odd years. 
the decay process was put there. And of course, after the flood, uh, the um, average age went way, way down. Verse 18, this is great. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. There's something we need to recognize about this verse. This is the first time so far God looks at his creation and says something's wrong. We recall last week that when God made the heavens and the earth, he looked at it and he said, that's good. I like it. And he'd make another thing and say, that's good. He said that four times. The only time he said something is not good is when he looked at man. It is not good that man should be alone. Paul the Apostle and Jesus bring forth the fact that there are some people that are gifted and called to be single. And indeed, it is a gift. In fact, the apostles say, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, that's a gift. God has to give that to a person. The average person, though, the norm is that a man and a woman will get together and become one flesh. That was God's original design. God looked at man and said, he's not complete yet. It's not good that man should be alone. In Hebrew, it's not good, not good, twice, that man should be alone. The first problem that God saw was the aloneness of man. He was not complete, even though he was surrounded with all of the animals, the lions, the tigers, the bears, oh my, the dogs, the horses. It says that God created them, brought them to man, and he named them, but there was not found among them a suitable helper comparable to him. You know, I used to hear when I was a kid that dog is man's best friend. It's wrong. Man had all of God's creation and he still wasn't complete. He had the perfect environment. He had the perfect job. He had what people would strive for for years, what they would save up their fortunes to have. A house in the country, away from the taxes, clean air, but he wasn't complete. He needed a woman. And so God said, I will make or I will fashion him a helper that is comparable to him. Matthew Henry in speaking about this section of Genesis, remarked by saying, Woman was not taken from man's head to be above him, nor was she taken from man's feet to be walked on by him, but she was taken from his side to be close to his heart, protected under his arm, to be his equal all the days of their lives. Because God formed the woman from the side of man, as we read in the next few verses. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air. Whatever language he used, we don't know. Whatever mental capacities man had before the fall, we can only guess. He no doubt had an incredibly superior intellect. Scientists tell us that uh, coming up with the nomenclature for different species is always a tough job. What are we going to call this thing? They come up with the strangest names, don't they? But Adam had the ability to look at that thing and say, cow. <laughs> Rhinoceros. Of course, I'm speaking English, and I'm sure he didn't, but he came up with that name, and it's been translated into various languages ever since. 
But it says in verse 20, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, I want to back up on this. God says, I'm going to make a helper. That doesn't set too well with a lot of gals. It sounds like she's not very important. She's just a helper. Well, what are you? I'm just a helper. I'm comparable to him. It would sound like, by looking at it in English, that she's just part of the work team. But the word helper is also translated in the Old Testament, rescuer. Not good, not good is man's aloneness. He needs a rescue operation. He needs to be rescued. I will make a helper. You say, well, is that my job, my role to help? Well, yes, and it's a wonderful role. It's also used of God. The same word is used when God is called a very present help in time of trouble. So God is called a helper. But this is a certain type of helper comparable to him, literally translated, a helper who will help the man reach complete fulfillment, his other half. Bring them together, and they will become one flesh. Complete fulfillment. And the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. As he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman. And he brought her to the man. I love it. God gives away the bride. I find it significant that God not only made the woman, but God brought the woman to the man. Here, Adam, I've got a present for you. I think that's wonderful. God took personal interest in bringing the woman to the man. And folks, I feel very strongly that God still does the same today. I am convinced that God looked at me in 1980 and 81. He said, it's not good that he should be alone. <laughs> He's not complete. He's not fulfilled. Though I was very happy as a single person. I really was. I wasn't seeking a wife. I wasn't figuring out a way to finagle a date or going to every singles meeting and trying to get a... I just... I was loving how I was as a single... I enjoyed it. But God knew better. God knew it would help me to be complete. So he said, it's not good. I'm going to make him someone that will make him complete. And God brought my wife to me. She's sitting in the third row right over here. And she's been a completion to me, a fulfillment to me. She's added color in my life, variety. She does things very differently than I do them. She sees things differently than I see them. But God has molded me through my marriage. You know, but when I was single, I thought I was really a great guy. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm pretty clean. I straight, you know, for, compared to most bachelors, you know, my house, people would remark, say, boy, you really are clean. Well, you know. I could get along with anyone. Of course, I only lived by myself or with a roommate that was seldom there. And when I got married, God used her to show me who I really was and where I needed to change. Brought fullness, though, to my life, comparable to me. Anyway... 
Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, Isha in Hebrew, because she was taken out of Ish, man. That sounds like a strange kind of a thing when a woman is brought to the man. Well, what do you think, Adam? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The Living Bible captures the Hebrew flavor a little bit better. It says, this is it. This is the one that came from me, from my bones and my flesh. There was this sense of exhilaration. And it's captured in the Hebrew but not transferred well into English. Oh, this is it. A couple months ago I did a wedding. And I love looking at the groom. I always make it my practice when the bride is about to come down the aisle. He's nervous. He's sweating because everybody's looking at him. And then all of the eyes go toward the back of the church as she's coming down the aisle. And I just kind of, I know she's coming, so I won't look at her. I'll look at him. A couple months ago, I did a wedding. And as she was coming down, he just went, whoa. I think that was Adam's response. This is it. Check her out. I'm sure that Eve was gorgeous, beautiful woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. God remarks upon the marriage. He looks at it. That's good. It's not good that he should be alone. Oh, that's good. Therefore, because of this, a man, here's the pattern now. A man will leave his father and mother. The first step in a relationship of marriage is severance. You break the cord of dependence upon mom and dad. And I would recommend, if you're getting married, that you make strong steps to do just that. Don't say, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always call mom. No, you don't. You rely upon each other. One of the things I've appreciated about my father-in-law is that he will always say to my wife, even almost in an overboard fashion, now you check with your husband about this. This is what I think. You check with him. I'm not, you know, he's your head. And I appreciate that. A man will leave father or mother. The greatest gift, parents, you can give to your daughter or your son is cut the cord, release them. When they're married, they're married. Oh, that doesn't mean you can't advise them. But you make sure you're always pushing that daughter toward that man that she married or that son toward that woman. There has to be a severance. Every other relationship takes second and third and fourth place. The marriage relationship is first. There is severance. The second step is permanence. She shall be joined to, her, to the wife, or they shall cleave, literally to be welded or glued permanently together. Permanently together. Until death do us part. Not until debt do us part, until feelings do us part, until I change my mind, you change your mind, we'll love each other, if you get ugly, I get ugly, we'll look at it again. No, that's not it. It's permanent. It's permanent. We forget that in this society. There's always this back door. It's permanent. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why? Because man didn't invent marriage. God did. Before government, before any form of anything, he created marriage. And since he invented it, and it's his institution, he brought the rules into play. Man has not the right nor the capacity to tamper with a God-given institution. That's why he said, if you're going to get married, you better think about it. It's until death do you part. I wonder how many couples really hear the vows at the altar when they get married. I think about it every time I do a wedding. They're so giddy. They're so happy. And they have every right to be. 
But I think they hear the words better, richer, health. Instead of for better or worse, richer or poorer in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish till death do us part. It's permanent. That's why it should be entered into, not hastily. Cautiously before the Lord. Is this your will? I'm convinced that when a man and a woman love the Lord and they submit their lives unto Him and they're willing to wait for God's best, God will give them the best. My wife is the best for me. She completes and fills my life. No other, no other human in the world could come close. God knew what was best and He wanted someone to fulfill me. And I think when you submit yourself unto the Lord, the Bible says the steps of a righteous man are directed by the Lord, and he delights in his path. You say, well, I don't know which one I should marry. I mean, there's, well, hey, what does Proverbs say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And you trust the Lord, and you let him develop that relationship. The two shall become one flesh. That's the third step, unity. And then verse 25 is the fourth step, intimacy. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They were so secure in their commitment, in their love for each other, they were unashamed until chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now chapter 3 is called by some, the most important chapter in the Bible. I don't know that I would agree, but certainly it's one of the most. It's the pivotal point of the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2 speak of generation. Chapter 3 through 11 speaks of degeneration. Chapters 12 through 50, regeneration. You're going to see man going downhill from this point to where man is today, not what God intended. Chapter 3 is so important, you know how to prove it? Try reading Genesis 1, 2, and then 4. It won't make sense. There's a vacuum. All of a sudden you read about greed and murder and, and avarice. And you wonder, where did it come from? That's why you need chapter 3. It tells you the source of it. Well, we read about a serpent. We wonder, who is he? How did he get there? Well, we know he's the devil. We read about him in Revelation and other places. He's called that old serpent, the devil which deceiveth the whole world who is cast down to the earth and took with him a third of the stars of heaven. I don't picture in my mind anymore a little guy in a red suit with funny little horns, shiny suit with a little tail, and a pitchfork. That was done by Hollywood. I'm convinced that the serpent originally, Satan, was a, one of God's most beautiful creations. And I read Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, to get that information, some background. The anointed cherub that covers, he was the original musician. He was so beautiful that like the Greek god Narcissus, he was taken in with himself. He's like, I'm so beautiful. I want to be like the Most High. And at first he comes to Eve and challenges the Word of God. Did God really say... Doesn't he do that today? How do you know this is the Word of God? Did God really say that? How can you be sure? 
Did God really say you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. You won't surely die. Second thing, he contradicts. First he questions God's word, then he contradicts it. God didn't say that. Then he challenges God's love when he says, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't love you. He's trying to hide something from you. He's trying to ruin your life. If God really loved you, he'd let you eat anything you want to. But it sounds like a lot of thinking I hear today. If God really loved me, he'd let me do anything I want to. No, God loves you enough to know that if you do anything you want to, You'll be in tough shape. God loves you enough to say, hands off. Let me guide your life. The fourth thing Satan does is deifies man. You'll become like God. Which is what the Mormon church has tried to do. Much of the faith movement in the church today, the evangelical church has tried to do. And the New Age movement with its monism and its push toward deifying man is also done. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The tree was good looking, and that wasn't bad. It was not bad that God made something beautiful to look upon. God is a God of beauty. It was not bad that it was good for food. God made it to taste good. What was evil and what made this that was, which was good evil is that man tried to fulfill himself in disobedience to God outside the will of God. It then became evil. It looked good. It would taste good. It would make one wise. It was the same kind of temptation that Satan used with Jesus Christ. He said, command these stones to be made bread. It's good for food. Then he took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. And he said, I'll give these to you because they're mine and I can give them to whomsoever I will. Just worship me. The beauty according to the eyes. And then just like that which is desirable to make one wise, that pride of life, Satan came and he said, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. For he has said he will give his angels charge over thee to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And that is how the enemy comes and attacks you and I today in the three areas that John wrote about in his epistle. Love not the world, neither the things that are in this world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you've got an old nature which likes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It loves to be fulfilled apart from the will of God. But as a Christian, you've got a new nature, which is only satisfied in communion with God and doing the will of God. The only problem is, is that they war one against another so that you cannot do what you want. You have to submit to one master or the other master. True, abundant life is found in submitting to the will of God, even apart from the will of the flesh. The eyes of both of them were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, because of the fall of man, man is given conscience. Up to this point, there was innocence, not conscience. In the age of innocence, all he knew was good. Now he can tell the difference between good and evil. He's gotten a conscience because of the fall. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. Isn't it interesting that the only tree that we know of by today's standards, mentioned in the Garden of Eden, is the fig tree. The only tree Jesus cursed was the fig tree. Man tried to cover himself, making his own garments, because he had now conscience. Man still tries to cover himself with the fig leaves of religion, good works, Patting himself on the back, I'll do this, this, and this to achieve righteousness before God. The Bible says all of our righteousness is filthy rags to God. He won't accept them. Every time you try to make God love you by doing something good, I'll get to heaven by going to church and being good and giving to relief organizations, this and that, so that I can go to heaven. You're sowing fig leaves. Faith in Jesus Christ alone and in His righteousness will save you from sin. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How beautiful. There was God in the beginning wanting to fellowship with man. Adam, I'll meet you here every afternoon. We'll take a walk. We'll hang out together. We'll enjoy fellowship with each other. That's what God originally intended. But now the fellowship was broken. Man is dead spiritually, separated from God, and he hears God taking his walk. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? This is not the call of an angry God ready to judge his creation. This is the call of a heartbroken father who's been separated from the fellowship of his creation. Where are you? Not only where are he knew where they were. Where are you spiritually? You've fallen. And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? How did you know that? Who told you? There was that conscious that awareness, the conscience was now in play. Who told you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, Well, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. This is called passing the buck. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now there was no one left to blame after that. And of course, he's cursed above all cattle and all creation, but, you know, man still does that today. It's the woman. Something doesn't go right in a marriage. Oh, this marriage, it's her. You know, I'm such a wonderful person. If I hadn't married her, everything would be all right. Well, what about it, woman? Well, it's him. Actually, Adam was blaming God. It's the woman you gave me. I was fine. You were the one that said it's not good that I should be alone. It wasn't my idea. I had a great time naming the animals. You said I needed a wife. You made her. This is what happens. It's your fault. 
Well, Eve, what about it? Well, it's that devil, that Satan, the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There are some interesting things about the coming of the Messiah in these verses. Some interesting things about the prediction of the battle of the sexes, about the idea that males have and the ideals that women have and feminists even have that are seen in these verses, but we'll have to wait till next week because our time's up. So we'll pick up where we left off, finishing up Genesis chapter 2 and, uh, I mean Genesis chapter 3. We almost finished Genesis chapter 3 and uh, we'll move on next week. As we close, since we have the map behind us, we're going to be making references to the areas of the Fertile Crescent that you see behind you, behind me. Um, you can see the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley by Babylon, the rivers that come together in the Persian Gulf. Um, Babylon, Assyria, Ur of the Chaldees, where Abram comes from in the book of Genesis later on and makes his trek down into Israel. And we're going to be pointing out several of these uh, so you don't have to look them up. We'll even show you the route of the Exodus when we get through it by putting tape on the map and letting you see which way they went and why and uh, uh, give you more background on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Word of God is inspired. It did not come by the will of men, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We are told that because of your promises, we have everything that would pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. That the word is profitable for doctrine and reproof, instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished and equipped. Lord, I pray that you would help us to observe your creation and marvel at your infinite capacity to create. And as we consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the sun, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, that we would be so grateful that you are mindful of man. And that we would be able to acknowledge you and trust our lives to you. How can we lose with a God that powerful and that loving who gave his son for us? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to treasure our mates to love our wives and our husbands, that husbands could love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to nourish, to lead, and help, Lord, the wives to submit to their husbands in all things as unto the Lord. Help our marriages, Lord, to reflect the kind of relationship you have for your people, the church. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.
In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.